Well, we continue our series today called When the End is the Beginning. In many respects in life, endings, painful, challenging, or sometimes good though they are, can be the beginning of something different. And that's certainly true in the Bible. And we are looking at the end of Luke's gospel where we hear about Jesus dying and then coming back to life and how then God sends his spirit and that's the beginning of the church. And today we're going to read from Acts chapter 2. So the words are going to come up on the screen and I want you to spot the difference and which you think is the Bible and which you think is me. Here we go. Acts chapter 2 verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and one or two were added to their number that day. Occasionally they spent some time listening to the apostles' teaching and when they could, they met for fellowship and for the breaking of bread and for prayer. Awe came upon some of them. However, there were not really any signs or wonders. All who believed were separated into different groups and kept themselves apart in all they did. They would hoard their own possessions and goods and show indifference to any that had need. Day by day they went about their own lives as individuals, only meeting fortnightly in the temple. They broke bread at home alone and ate their food with cold and empty hearts, giving token thanks to God and having the contempt of all the people. Day by day the influence of the church dwindled and very few were saved. I wonder which you think is the Bible, the one on the screen or the one I said. I don't know if you like agony aunt columns. They've kind of gone out of favor recently. Uh, But in 2014, an agony aunt letter in the Denver Post caught the attention of much that was on social media. In a column called Ask Amy, the writer read out, well, put a letter that she was sent. This letter is from somebody that calls herself Sad Sister. Let me read the letter to you. Dear Amy, every autumn, or every fall as they say in America, my sister, cousins, and a cousin's sister-in-law have a weekend shopping trip to our home city. We stay in a hotel, treat ourselves, shop for our children, and go out for lunches and dinners. It's a great time to reconnect. Now, I have a sister called Wendy, whom we don't invite. She's offended to the point of tears when she finds that we've not invited her. My two sisters and I are very close in age, but Wendy hasn't been as close to this set of cousins as my sister and I have been through the years. We're all married, stay-at-home mums, and Wendy is divorced, working mum with one young child. And there's several reasons that we don't include her. We know that she doesn't have very much money for such an outing. She also doesn't have many of the same interests as we do. We're all very active churchgoers. While she only sporadically attends services, plain and simple, she doesn't really fit in with us anymore. And she takes it very personally. And last year, she even came over to my home unannounced, crying about it, which upset my children and caused my husband to threaten to call the police if she didn't leave. Now she barely speaks to me and has told our relatives that I'm a horrible person, even though I have helped her. How can we get her to understand that she should perhaps find another set of friends whose lives and interests align more closely with hers? Signed, Sad Sister. Here is Amy's response in the Denver Post. This is the thing that caught the attention of social media. Dear Sad, First, let's establish that I agree with your sister. You are a horrible person. (laughs) 
Obviously, you can do whatever you want and associate with or exclude whoever you want, but you don't get to do this and also blame the person you're excluding for not fitting in. The only way your sister would ever fit in would be for you to make room for her. You're unwilling to do that, and that's your choice. But her being upset is completely justified, and you'll just have to live with it. Perhaps this is something you could ponder from your church pew, because despite your regular attendance, you don't seem to have learned very much. Community. We live in a world in which we long for community. But for many of us, it is community on our terms. And as Amy rightly points out, that's not the kind of community that the Bible talks about. I love this quote from the lead singer of Arcade Fire when he said, What I miss about church is being forced to be in community with people that aren't the same as me. Community is challenging, and yet we so deeply want it, don't we? We long for the kind of community in which we're accepted for who we are, a place where we can call home, a place where we are both valued and valuable, a place where we can take off our masks and with transparency say, this is me, and find a home. Which is why the famous American author Kurt Vonnegut famously said, the most daring thing to do with your life is to create stable communities in which the terrible disease of loneliness can be cured. With the rise of individualism, we long for community where we feel accepted. We long for the kind of community that has got our backs when we're struggling and where we can help others when they are struggling. We're a culture that longs for community, but are we willing to be part of community? Because being part of community is painful and hard. Well, we'll see today the birth of a new community. The kind of community in which anybody is valued and in which anybody is welcome. And that's the kind of community that changes the world. As Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small, committed group of people can change the world. It's, indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And so we're going to see three different components of this kind of community. And as we go through, let's all ask ourselves about our role in this kind of community. What is it? What kind of community changes the world like that? Three things from the passage that was on the screen, not the one I read to you. Here's the first thing. The kind of community that changes the world is a community that's devoted to Jesus. Let me read again from the Bible. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Devoted. That word in the original language has elements of this. Glue. They were stuck together. Committed together. The kind of commitment that means you can't be separated without damage being caused to each other. Like a, like a marriage, if you like. Where they were so devoted that separation causes pain. But not only is it commitment like that, that sort of deep, intimate devotion, there's always a forward dimension to it. 
it, actually it could say they were devoting themselves. Not just they were committed, but actually it was an onward journey of commitment to each other. What they knew was they hadn't got this sorted. They didn't know all the answers. And if we're honest, many of us would say devoted is a bit strong for, for our lives. But, but actually they had the trajectory that they, they were committed to trying, keeping on going, being committed to this community of people, committed to these things. It was an onward trajectory. They were devoted to Jesus and they had an onward commitment to being devoted to Jesus, whatever that looked like. And, and the writer, Luke, paints four different ways that, that that commitment, that devotion lives its way out. Firstly, they were devoted. You read that? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the truth in the pages of the scripture. Now, let me give an example of what that looks like when it comes to how we handle the Bible. I think there's two kind of ways you might handle the Bible. Only for a moment, imagine this book is the Bible. Here's one way you can treat the Bible. Put it on the floor, and then there's me standing on it. In that situation, I am the one who is over the Bible. I am the one who has authority over the Bible. So I get to choose how I use the Bible. And So things that are in the Bible that I find a bit tricky, well, I don't want to be listening to that, or I can reinvent that. Are the bits that I like, yeah, I can put those on my fridge. But the bits that I find unsettling or I don't understand, I won't bother with those. That's me being an authority over the Bible. Another way to do it is like this. Let's see if I can balance it. The Bible is over us. In other words, the Bible is the one that has authority over us. And so when there are bits we struggle with or where there are bits we understand... Challenging may that they may, though they may be, a commitment to the Bible like that means, well, I'm going to try and work out what this looks like and do all I can to be devoted to that, even if it means changes in my life. Might I suggest that's how the first Christians lived, where the apostles' teaching and the pages of the scripture, they were in authority over their lives. And so therefore, devotion to it means I'm going to try and commit myself to this, even though that might be challenging and difficult. And therefore, can I say this? There will be people in the room right now who in any gathering like this think to themselves, boy, compared to that person over there, I know nothing of the Bible. Compared to Harry... I don't know half of what Harry knows. Or, or compared to, to, to Sue, I, I don't know very little. And so therefore we feel slightly overwhelmed and we think, boy, I'm not as devoted as they are. And yet, and yet, might I suggest that the kind of commitment that these guys had was not about what they knew now, but just that simple onward trajectory to say, well, I, I'm going to do all I can to keep going. And to learn, to spend time reading and to see what it means for my life. Even though I don't know very much now. And so therefore, if that's you, don't worry. If you're thinking and compared to this room, I know very little. That's absolutely fine. And therefore, devotion means going forward, saying that onward trajectory to keep on going. But for those of us who are in the room who we might think to ourselves, well, I, I, I think I know a little bit. And we might think of ourselves as slightly sort of mature or, 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 or knowing a little bit. Uh, well, here's the question. Does our devotion to the Bible mean that we just think of ourselves as having a role to teach others 
Or are we in that onward journey ourselves of learning? Where we're devoted to saying, God, what does this mean now for my life? I remember a friend of mine. A friend of mine had just become a Christian many years ago. And he went to an event where a guy called John Stott was doing some preaching. Now, if you've never heard of John Stott, he was quite a well-known preacher in the 20th century. Just Google him. He's very influential. Now, this friend of mine, at the end of this event, went up to speak to John Stott. And there was a queue of people speaking to him and all that kind of stuff. When my friend got to him, my friend said, can I just say I disagreed with something you said? John Stott's reaction was brilliant as he said, thank you. Thank you. And the reason he said thank you, he said because everybody else had just spent the time queuing up saying, wow, John Stott, thank you, you know so much. And John Stott said to my friend, nobody ever questions what I say. And here was my friend who, in his mind, knew very little questioning something about an understanding. And so therefore, for those of us who think we've got it all together, a devotion to truth and a devotion to the apostles' teaching means an onward humility, doesn't it? That we don't know very much. We see but through a glass dimly. So that's what devotion to Jesus looks like, devotion to truth. But there's another thing here. They devoted themselves, verse 42, to prayer. To prayer. Now I would guess, I'm not going to do this, but if I was to ask for a show of hands of who in the room thinks that they're devoted to prayer, I would be surprised if any of us put our hands in the air. Uh, I'm not going to ask if you would. (laughs) Come and speak to me afterwards if you would. But I guess all of us think, I haven't got this sorted. And we look at others and think, I wish, I wish, I wish. Might I suggest that commitment just means the onward trajectory to say, I'm going to keep on battling, I'm going to keep on trying. For some of us, we've grown tired of praying because it's exhausting and the answers we long for haven't yet come. A devotion just simply means, God, I'm going to keep on pouring my heart out even when it's painful. And for other of us, can I suggest, for some of us, we might we just need to try a different way of praying. Some of us have never, for example, used written prayers. And can I encourage you, if you've never used written prayers and your prayer life is just kind of dried up, Sometimes the way other people have prayed and written them down can be immensely freeing because we don't even have to be clever in our own minds. Try using some of the old prayers, some of the prayers of the Bible, some very simple one-line prayers that you may find helpful. So devotion to prayer. Another way, verse 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders performed by the apostles. A better translation of that is, And fear came upon every soul. There was something happening in this community that made those outside the community a bit nervous. Their devotion to Jesus means being open to what God may do in their midst. May we be a community where people are unsettled by what God is doing in his grace in our community. And then the final thing about being devoted to Jesus, verse 47 They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They were devoted to praising God. In our gatherings on Sundays or in our community groups or or in our life groups or whenever it is, in our triplets, whatever it is, we have a choice to make, don't we? 
to praise God or not to. And can I say, there may be one or two people in the room right now for whom stuff is happening in your life and to praise God in it is a hugely painful sacrifice. If that's you, can I really encourage you that even your presence here, for those that know the stuff in your life, is a huge encouragement. Because what you're choosing to do is to say, even in the middle of this storm, I'm choosing a hallelujah. Even in the middle of the pain where I don't know what on earth is happening, God, I'm choosing to say, God, I trust you, even though it's deeply painful to sing some of the words we've sung. That, dare I say, is the kind of praise that makes God look incredible. And so if you're somebody who you just feel even getting to church is a huge barrier and a burden, well done. Well done. That's praise. That's devotion to Jesus. So that's the first thing. They were a community devoted to Jesus. But not only that, they were a community devoted to each other. Verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then verse 44 to 46 unpacks what that looks like. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone that had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were devoted, committed, stuck together with each other. What did that look like? Well, firstly, they were united but not uniform. They were united but not uniform. Do you notice verse 44? All the believers were together. And if you remember at Pentecost what was happening last week, if you were here, where all these different people from all over the place, different languages, different tribes, different tongues, that's all the believers. These people were not the same. Ordinarily, they wouldn't be together in a community. But they were together because of Jesus' grace. Which therefore means there's no room for what you can call imposter syndrome. Now, I don't know if you've heard about imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is something where if you're in a position of leadership, you feel like an imposter because you're terrified that one day someone will find you out that you don't deserve to be there. I don't know of any leader that doesn't feel imposter syndrome. Certainly, I know of no church leaders that don't feel one day somebody might find them out. Let me read you a beautiful story from a journalist called Neil Gaiman. See if this resonates. Some years ago, I was lucky enough to be invited to a gathering of the great and good people. Artists, scientists, writers, discoverers of things. And I felt that at any moment, they'd realize that I didn't qualify to be there among these people who'd really done great things. On my second or third night there, I was standing at the back of the hall while some music happened at the front, and I started talking to a very nice, polite, elderly gentleman at the back. We, we talked about several things, including our shared first name, and then he pointed to this hall of people and said words to the effect, I just look at these people and think, what the heck am I doing here? They've made amazing things. I just went where I was sent. And I said to the man, yes, 
but you were the first man on the moon. I think that counts for something. And he writes, I felt a bit better. Because if Neil Armstrong felt like an imposter, well, maybe everyone did. Maybe there weren't any grown-ups. <laughs> Only people who'd worked hard, got lucky, slightly out of their depth. All of us doing the best we could, which is all we can really hope for. Friends, in the community of God's people, you are not an imposter. Everybody is equal. Everybody is saved not by how good they are or impressive what they've done, but because of God's grace in Jesus. So they're united but not uniform. They're also, verse 45, committed to giving, not getting. Let me read it. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Their focus was on what they could contribute to the community, not what the community could contribute to them. And that's such a challenge for our society, isn't it? Where we're in a culture where it's all about me. And so I can do this job because of how it makes me feel. And I can get this particular thing because it makes me look good. And I can go here because it makes me feel special. And I can be in this relationship because of what it does for me. It's all about me. And even in a church community, it can be about what I get out of it rather than the community of people who are committed to seeing what they can put in and serving. And that kind of community becomes a commodity rather than a community. It's about me rather than sharing in. But finally, in this bit, their homes were hospitals, not castles. Let me read again verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You know, a castle is your home, a castle. Castle is where the walls are strong and secure so that we can feel safe inside. That's how some people have their homes. Whereas, do you know the word hospital at root means a home for strangers? Beautiful phrase. And here, their homes were where they met with other people. The community in their homes. So their homes were not castles, barrier for other people, but they were places where people could come in and find hope and joy and freedom and healing. And let me suggest a way that we can change our homes from a castle to a hospital. And this might be a controversial one, and you might want to disagree. And if so, come and speak to me afterwards. Might I suggest in our 21st century culture a way that we can help our homes to be hospitals rather than castles is by how much we clean our homes. Let me make a suggestion. Disagree if you want. I can feel the atmosphere's changed. You go to somebody's house, house and you go at it, it looks incredible. And you think, Wow. My house is nothing like this because of how tidy it is, how clean it is, how lovely it smells. There's nothing all over the floor. It's immaculate. And therefore, you go in and you think, wow. And therefore, when some people come to our house, we need to do the same. Now, I know that that kind of culture is, is to try and make people feel special. Great. Do you make people feel valued because you've cleared up and all that sort of stuff? But can I also suggest, I mean, hear me, I'm not saying don't clean, <laughs> please. But can I also suggest there's something immensely liberating where you go into somebody's house and it is untidy. Because you feel a part of the furniture and you feel as though you're entering into their home 
rather than into this pristine house. As somebody said to me last week, after I did this talk at Queensbridge, they said the, the quote, if you want to visit my house, you need to make an appointment. But if you want to come to my home, just turn up. And I think there's truth in that. Disagree if you want. Come speak to me afterwards. We can have a good discussion about it. So a community devoted to each other. Finally, as we come to a close, the kind of community that changes the world is the community that's devoted to those outside the community. Did you notice the sandwich here? Verse 41, those who accepted Peter's message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And verse 47, they met in their homes praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. Do you see the sandwich? This kind of community has a massive impact on those outside the community. And those outside the community heard the message and wanted to follow this Jesus that this community was centered around. I love this quote that I saw on Twitter recently. It's easy to love a city or a neighborhood or a church. It's much harder to love actual people. And there's the challenge, isn't it? We can be a church, can't we, that we want to impact the city, want to impact Bourneville, want to bring grace and hope and life to our city. And that starts with real people, doesn't it? Our neighbors, the people we know, just being a blessing. And it starts with the kind of community that we are. So that in our community groups, friends can come in and experience something of this kind of lovely, inviting community. And there's two ways that therefore this kind of community has that impact. Well, firstly, others noticed what was going on. Did you see that? There was something about this community that others outside it took notice. May we be that kind of community. The others say, wow, that thing you do, that's pretty amazing. But not only did they notice, they also understood. There was something about how this church lived and what this church said that other people understood who this was about. That this wasn't about this lovely community, but this was a community that had been transformed by Jesus. Why? Because when Jesus gave his spirit, he said, you will be my witnesses. And so therefore, it's easy, isn't it, to think when we meet in our Sunday gatherings or in our community groups that it's about us. But dare I say, friends, let's not forget those outside so that they might also come to know the life and hope and grace that we found in the community that we share together in and the community we're devoted to. Shall we pray together? In a moment, the band are going to come and lead us again as we worship and respond. But I'm going to ask us to do something brave this morning. It might be that as we've been thinking and reflecting, you sense that there's, there's something that, that maybe God has been speaking to you about or, or something that's just really connected that you think, yeah, I'm just going to, in a moment, invite us, if there's something in this that you want to say, yes, God, there's something I want to kind of change in my life or something I've understood for a new way, in a moment, I'm going to simply ask you to put your hand up as we hear with our eyes closed. Just as it were as a public symbol to say, yep, Lord, there's something here. I want to respond to this. It may be that for some of us, if we're honest, 
we're not sure who this Jesus is and we're not sure whether we'd call ourselves a Christian or we've got all this stuff sorted. But today, something is connected in us uh, that we want to say, yeah, I, I want to know more. Or for others, we just know, yes, I want to be more devoted. I want to keep going. So if that's you, can I just encourage you now with our eyes closed to simply put our hands in the air to say, yes, Jesus, I want to be more committed, more devoted. Can I invite you to do that? If you'd find that helpful, please do.